Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with post-scarcity anarchism. So, let's continue. Assembly and Community Let us turn to the popular assembly for an insight into unmediated forms of social relations. The assembly probably formed the structural basis of early clan and tribal society until its functions were preempted by chiefs and councils. It appeared as the ecclesia in classical Athens. Later, in a mixed and often perverted form, it reappeared in the medieval and renaissance towns of Europe. Finally, as the sections, assemblies emerged as the insurgent bodies in Paris during the Great Revolution. The Ecclesia and the Parisian sections warrant the closest study. Both developed in the most complex cities of their time, and both assumed a highly sophisticated form, often welding individuals of different social origins into a remarkable, albeit temporary, community of interests. It does not minimize their limitations to say that they developed methods of functioning so successfully libertarian in character that even the most imaginative utopias have failed to match in speculation what they achieved in practice. The Athenian ecclesia was probably rooted in the early assemblies of the Greek tribes. With the development of property and social classes, it was replaced by a feudal social structure lingering only in the social memory of the people. For a time, Athenian society seemed to be charting the disastrous course toward internal decay that Rome was to follow several centuries later. A large class of heavily mortgaged peasants, a growing number of serf-like sharecroppers, and a large body of urban laborers and slaves were polarized against a small number of powerful land magnates, and a parvenu commercial middle class. By the 6th century BC, all the conditions in Athens and Attica, the surrounding agricultural region, had ripened for a devastating social war. The course of Athenian history was reversed by the reforms of Solon. In a series of drastic measures, the peasantry was restored to an economically viable condition, The landowners were shorn of most of their power, the ecclesia was revived, and a reasonably equitable system of justice was established. The trend toward a popular democracy continued to unfold for nearly a century and a half, until it achieved a form that has never quite been equaled elsewhere. By Periclean times, the Athenians had perfected their pulley to a point where it represented a triumph of rationality within the material limitations of the ancient world. Structurally, the basis of the Athenian pulley was the Ecclesia. Shortly after sunrise, at each Prytany, the tenth day of the year, thousands of male citizens from all over Attica began to gather on the Pnyx, a hill directly outside Athens for a meeting of the assembly. Here, in the open air, they leisurely disported themselves among groups of friends until the solemn intonation of prayers announced the opening of the meeting. The agenda, arranged under the three headings of sacred, profane, and foreign affairs, had been distributed days earlier with the announcement of the assembly. Although the Ecclesia could not add or bring forward anything that the agenda did not contain, its subject matter could be rearranged at the will of the assembly. 
No quorum was necessary, except for proposed decrees affecting individual citizens. The Ecclesia enjoyed complete sovereignty over all institutions and offices in Athenian society. It decided questions of war and peace, elected and removed generals, reviewed military campaigns, debated and voted upon domestic and foreign policy, redressed grievances, examined and passed upon the operations of administrative boards, and banished undesirable citizens. Roughly one man out of six in the citizen body was occupied at any given time with the administration of the community's affairs. Some 1,500 men, chosen mainly by lot, staffed the boards responsible for the collection of taxes. The management of shipping, food supply and public facilities, and the preparation of plans for public construction. The army, composed entirely of conscripts from each of the ten tribes of Attica, was led by elected officers. Athens was policed by citizen bowmen and Scythian state slaves. The agenda of the Ecclesia was prepared by a body called the Council of 500. Lest the council gain any authority over the Ecclesia, the Athenians carefully circumscribed its composition and functions. Chosen by lot from rosters of citizens who, in turn, were elected annually by the tribes, the council was divided into ten subcommittees, each of which was on duty for a tenth of the year. Every day a president was selected by lot from among the fifty members of the subcommittee that was on duty to the poli. During his twenty-four hours of office, the council's president held the state seal and the keys to the citadel and public archives and functioned as acting head of the country. Once he had been chosen, he could not occupy the position again. Each of the ten tribes annually elected 600 citizens to serve as judges, what we would call jurymen, in the Athenian courts. Every morning they trudged up to the temple of Theseus where lots were drawn for the trials of the day. Each court consisted of at least 201 jurymen and the trials were fair by any historical standard of judicial practice. Taken as a whole, this was a remarkable system of social management. Run almost entirely by amateurs, the Athenian poly reduced the formulation and administration of public policy to a completely public affair. Quote, Here is no privileged class, no class of skilled politicians, no bureaucracy, no body of men, like the Roman Senate, who alone understood the secrets of state, and were looked up to and trusted as the gathered wisdom of the whole community, observes W. Ward Fowler. At Athens there was no disposition, and in fact, no need, to trust the experience of any one. Each man entered intelligently into the details of his own temporary duties and discharged them, as far as we can tell, with industry and integrity. End quote. Citation 26. Overdrawn as this view may be for a class society that required slaves and denied women any role in the poly, the fact remains that Farley's account is essentially accurate. Indeed, the greatness of the achievement lies in the fact that Athens, despite the slave, patriarchal, and class features it shared with classical society, as a whole developed into a working democracy in the literal sense of the term. 
No less significant, and perhaps consoling for our own time, is the fact that this achievement occurred when it seemed that the pulley had charted a headlong course towards social decay. At its best, Athenian democracy greatly modified the more abusive and inhuman features of ancient society. The burdens of slavery were small by comparison with other historical periods, except when slaves were employed in capitalist enterprises. Generally, slaves were allowed to accumulate their own funds. On the yeoman farmsteads of Attica, they generally worked under the same conditions and shared the same food as their masters. In Athens, they were indistinguishable in dress, manner, and bearing from citizens, a source of ironical comment by foreign visitors. In many crafts, slaves not only worked side by side with freemen, but occupied supervisory positions over free workers, as well as other slaves. On balance, the image of Athens as a slave economy which built its civilization and generous humanistic outlook on the backs of human chattels is false. Quote, false in its interpretation of the past and in its confident pessimism as to the future, willfully false, above all, in its cynical estimate of human nature, observes Edward Zimmerman. Societies, like men, cannot live in compartments. They cannot hope to achieve greatness by making amends in their use of leisure for the lives they have brutalized in acquiring it. Art, literature, philosophy, and all other great products of a nation's genius are no mere delicate growths of a sequestered hothouse culture. They must be sturdily rooted and find continual nourishment in the broad common soil of national life. That, if we are looking for lessons, is one we might learn from ancient Greece. Citation 27. In Athens, the popular assembly emerged as the final product of a sweeping social transition. In Paris, more than two millennia later, it emerged as the lever of social transition itself, as a revolutionary form and an insurrectionary force. The Parisian sections of the early 1790s played the same role as organs of struggle as the Soviets of 1905 and 1917, with the decisive difference that relations within the sections were not mediated by a hierarchical structure. Sovereignty rested with the revolutionary assemblies themselves, not above them. The Parisian sections emerged directly from the voting system established for elections to the Estates General. In 1789, the monarchy had divided the capital into 60 electoral districts, each of which formed an assembly of so-called active or taxpaying citizens, the eligible voters of the city. These primary assemblies were expected to elect a body of electors which, in turn, was to choose the 60 representatives of the capital. After performing their electoral functions, the assemblies were required to disappear, but they remained on in defiance of the monarchy and constituted themselves into permanent municipal bodies. By degrees, they turned into neighborhood assemblies of all active citizens, varying in form, scope, and power from one district to another. The Municipal Law of May 1790 reorganized the 60 districts into 48 sections. The law was intended to circumscribe the popular assemblies, but the sections simply ignored it. They continued to broaden their base and extend their control over Paris. 
On July 30th, 1792, the Théâtre Français section swept aside the distinction between active and passive citizens, inviting the poorest and most destitute of the saint coulant to participate in the assembly. Other sections followed the Théâtre Français, and from this period, the sections became authentic popular organs, indeed the very soul of the Great Revolution. It was the sections which constituted the new revolutionary commune of August 10th, which organized the attack on the Tuileries and finally eliminated the Bourbon monarchy. It was the sections which decisively blocked the efforts of the Girondins to rouse the provinces against revolutionary Paris. It was the sections which, by ceaseless prodding, by their unending delegations and by armed demonstrations, provided the revolution with its remarkable leftward momentum after 1791. The sections, however, were not merely fighting organisations. They represented genuine forms of self-management. At the high point of their development, they took over the complete administration of the city. Individual sections policed their own neighbourhoods, elected their own judges, were responsible for the distribution of food, provided public aid to the poor, and contributed to the maintenance of the National Guard. With the declaration of war in April 1792, the sections took on the added tasks of enrolling volunteers for the Revolutionary Army and caring for their families collecting donations for the war effort, and equipping and provisioning entire battalions. During the period of the Maximum, when controls were established over prices and wages to prevent our runaway inflation, the sections took responsibility for the maintenance of government fixed prices. To provision Paris, the sections sent their representatives to the countryside to buy and transport food and see to its distribution at fair prices. It must be borne in mind that this complex of extremely important activities was undertaken not by professional bureaucrats, but, for the most part, by ordinary shopkeepers and craftsmen. The bulk of the sectional responsibilities were discharged after working hours, during the free time of the section members. The popular assemblies of the sections usually met during the evenings in neighbourhood churches. Assemblies were ordinarily open to all the adults of the neighbourhood. In periods of emergency, assembly meetings were held daily. Special meetings could be called at the request of 50 members. Most administrative responsibilities were discharged by committees, but the popular assemblies established all the policies of the sections, reviewed and passed upon the work of all the committees, and replaced officers at will. The 48 sections were coordinated through the Paris Commune, the municipal council of the capital. When emergencies arose, sections often cooperated with each other directly, through ad hoc delegates. This form of cooperation from below never crystallized into a permanent relationship. The Paris Commune of the Great Revolution never became an overbearing ossified institution. It changed with almost every important political emergency and its stability, form, and functions depended largely upon the wishes of the sections. In the days preceding the uprising of August 10th, 1792, for example, the sections simply suspended the old municipal council, 
confined Pétion, the mayor of Paris, and in the persons of their insurrectionary commissioners, took over all the authority of the commune and the command of the National Guard. Almost the same procedure was followed nine months later when the Girondin deputies were expelled from the convention, with the difference that the commune and Pache, the mayor of Paris, gave their consent, after some persuasive gestures, to the uprising of the radical sections. Having relied on the sections to fasten their hold on the convention, the Jacobins began to rely on the convention to destroy the sections. In September 1793, the convention limited section assemblies to two a week. Three months later, the sections were deprived of their right to elect justices of the peace and divested of their role in organizing relief work. The sweeping centralization of France, which the Jacobins undertook between 1793 and 1794, completed the destruction of the sections. Footnote 33. The sections were denied control over the police and their administrative responsibilities were placed in the hands of salaried bureaucrats. By January 1794, the vitality of the sections had been thoroughly sapped. As Michelet observes, quote, The general assemblies of the sections were dead, and all their power had passed to the revolutionary committees, which themselves being no longer elected bodies, but simply groups of officials nominated by the authorities, had not much life in them either. End quote. The sections had been subverted by the very revolutionary leaders they had raised to power in the convention. When the time came for Robespierre, Saint-Just and Lebas to appeal to the sections against the convention, the majority did virtually nothing in their behalf. Indeed, the revolutionary Gravier section, the men who had so earnestly supported Jacques Roux and the Enragés in 1793, vindictively placed their arms at the service of the Thermidorians and marched against the Robespierreists, the Jacobin leaders who, a few months earlier, had driven Roux to suicide and guillotined the spokesmen of the left. From here to there. The factors which undermine the assemblies of classical Athens and revolutionary Paris require very little discussion. In both cases, the assembly mode of organization was broken up not only from without, but also from within, by the development of class antagonisms. There are no forms, however cleverly contrived, that can overcome the content of a given society. Lacking the material resources, the technology, and the level of economic development to overcome class antagonisms as such, Athens and Paris could achieve an approximation of the forms of freedom only temporarily, and only to deal with the more serious threat of complete social decay. Athens held on to the Ecclesia for several centuries, mainly because the police still retained a living contact with tribal forms of organization. Paris developed its sectional mode of organization for a period of several years, largely because the Saint-Coulant had precipitously swept to the head of the revolution by a rare combination of fortunate circumstances. Both the Ecclesia and the sections were undermined by the very conditions they were intended to check. Property, class antagonisms, and exploitation. But which they were capable of eliminating. 
What is remarkable about them is that they worked at all. Considering the enormous problems they faced and the formidable obstacles they had to overcome. It must be borne in mind that Athens and Paris were large cities, not peasant villages. Indeed, they were complex, highly sophisticated urban centres by the standards of their time. Athens supported a population of more than a quarter of a million, Paris, over 700,000. Both cities were engaged in worldwide trade. Both were burdened by complex logistical problems. Both had a multitude of needs that could be satisfied only by a fairly elaborate system of public administration. Although each had only a fraction of the population of present-day New York or London, their advantages on this score were more than cancelled out by their extremely crude systems of communication and transportation and by the need, in Paris at least, for members of the assembly to devote the greater part of the day to brute toil. Yet Paris, no less than Athens, was administered by amateurs, by men who, for several years and in their spare time, saw to the administration of a city in revolutionary ferment. The principal means by which they made their revolution, organised its conquests, and finally sustained it against counter-revolution at home and invasion abroad, was the neighbourhood public assembly. There is no evidence that these assemblies and the committees they produced were inefficient or technically incompetent. On the contrary, they awakened a popular initiative, a resoluteness in action, and a sense of revolutionary purpose that no professional bureaucracy, however radical its pretensions, could ever hope to achieve. Indeed, it is worth emphasizing that Athens founded Western philosophy, mathematics, drama, historiography, and art, and that revolutionary Paris contributed more than its share to the culture of the time and the political thought of the Western world. The arena for these achievements was not the traditional state, structured around a bureaucratic apparatus, but a system of unmediated relations, a face-to-face -face democracy organised into public assemblies. The sections provide us with a rough model of assembly organization in a large city and during a period of revolutionary transition from a centralized political state to a potentially decentralized society. The Ecclesia provides us with a rough model of assembly organization in a decentralized society. The word model is used deliberately. The Ecclesia and the sections were lived experiences, not theoretical visions. But precisely because of this, they validate, in practice, many anarchic theoretical speculations that have often been dismissed as visionary and unrealistic. The goal of dissolving propertied society, class rule, centralization, and the state is as old as the historical emergence of property classes and states. In the beginning, the rebels could look backwards to clans, tribes, and federations. It was still a time when the past was closer at hand than the future. Then the past receded completely from man's vision and memory, except perhaps as a lingering dream of the Golden Age or the Garden of Eden. Footnote 34. 
At this point, the very notion of liberation becomes speculative and theoretical, and like all strictly theoretical visions, its content was permeated with the social material of the present. Hence, the fact that Utopia, from Moore to Bellamy, is an image not of a hypothetical future, but of a present drawn to the logical conclusion of rationality or absurdity. Utopia has slaves, kings, princes, oligarchs, technocrats, elites, suburbanites, and a substantial petty bourgeoisie. Even on the left, it became customary to define the goal of a propertyless, stateless society as a series of approximations, of stages in which the end in view was attained by the use of the state. Mediated power entered into the vision of the future. Worse, as the development of Russia indicates, it was strengthened to the point where the state today is not merely the executive committee of a specific class, but a human condition. Life itself has become bureaucratized. In envisioning the complete dissolution of the existing society, we cannot get away from the question of power. Be it power over our own lives, the seizure of power, or the dissolution of power. In going from the present to the future, from here to there, we must ask, what is power? Under what conditions is it dissolved? And what does its dissolution mean? How do the forms of freedom, the unmediated relations of social life, emerge from a statified society? A society in which the state of unfreedom is carried to the point of absurdity, to domination for its own sake. We begin with the historical fact that nearly all the major revolutionary upheavals began spontaneously. Footnote 35. Witness the three days of disorder that preceded the takeover of the Bastille in July 1789. The defense of the artillery in Montmartre that led to the Paris Commune of 1871. The famous five days of February 1917 in Petrograd. The uprising of Barcelona in July 1936. The takeover of Budapest and the expulsion of the Russian army in 1956. Nearly all the great revolutions came from below, from the molecular movement of the masses, their progressive individuation and their explosion. An explosion which invariably took the authoritarian revolutionists completely by surprise. There can be no separation of the revolutionary process from the revolutionary goal. A society based on self-administration must be achieved by means of self-administration. This implies the forging of a self. Yes, literally a forging in the revolutionary process. And a mode of administration which the self can possess. Footnote 36. If we define power as the power of man over man, power can only be destroyed by the very process in which man acquires power over his own life, and in which he not only discovers himself, but, more meaningfully, formulates his selfhood in all its social dimensions. Freedom, so conceived, cannot be delivered to the individual as the end product of a revolution much less as a revolution achieved by social Philistines, who are hypnotized by the trappings of authority and power. The assembly and community cannot be legislated or decreed into existence. 
To be sure, a revolutionary group can purposefully and consciously seek to promote the creation of these forms, but if assembly and community are not allowed to emerge organically, if their growth is not instigated, developed, and matured by the social processes at work, they will not be really popular forms. Assembly and community must arise from within the revolutionary process itself. Indeed, the revolutionary process must be the formation of assembly and community, and with it, the destruction of power. Assembly and community must become fighting words, not distant panaceas. They must be created as modes of struggle against the existing society, not as theoretical or programmatic abstractions. It is hardly possible to stress this point strongly enough. The future assemblies of people in the block, the neighborhood, or the district, the revolutionary sections to come, will stand on a higher social level than all the present-day committees, syndicates, parties, and clubs adorned by the most resounding revolutionary titles. They will be the living nuclei of utopia in the decomposing body of bourgeois society. Meeting in auditoriums, theaters, courtyards, halls, parks, and, like their forerunners, the sections of 1793, in churches, they will be the arenas of demassification, for the very essence of the revolutionary process is people acting as individuals. At this point, the assembly may be faced not only with the power of the bourgeois state, the famous problem of dual power, but with the danger of the incipient state. Like the Paris sections, it will have to fight not only against the convention, but also against the tendency to create mediated social forms. Footnote 37. The factory committees, which will almost certainly be the forms that will take over industry, must be managed directly by workers' assemblies in the factories. By the same token, neighborhood committees, councils, and boards must be rooted completely in the neighborhood assembly. They must be answerable at every point to the assembly. They and their work must be under continual review by the assembly. And finally, their members must be subject to immediate recall by the assembly. The specific gravity of society, in short, must be shifted to its base. The armed people in permanent assembly. As long as the arena of the assembly is the modern bourgeois city, the revolution is faced with a recalcitrant environment. The bourgeois city, by its very nature and structure, fosters centralization, massification, and manipulation. Inorganic, gargantuan, and organized like a factory, the city tends to inhibit the development of an organic, rounded community. In its role as the universal solvent, the assembly must try to dissolve the city itself. We can envision young people renewing social life just as they renew the human species. Leaving the city, they begin to found the nuclear ecological communities to which older people repair in increasing numbers. Large resource pools are mobilized for their use. Careful ecological surveys and suggestions are placed at their disposal by the most competent and imaginative people available. The modern city begins to shrivel, to contract, and to disappear, as did its ancient progenitors millennia earlier. 
In the new, rounded, ecological community, the assembly finds its authentic environment and true shelter. Form and content now correspond completely. The journey from here to there, from sections to ecclesia, from cities to communities, is completed. No longer is the factory a particularized phenomenon. It now becomes an organic part of the community. In this sense, it is no longer a factory. The dissolution of the factory into the community completes the dissolution of the last vestiges of property, of class, and, above all, of mediated society into the new poly. And now the drama of human life can unfold in all its beauty, harmony, creativity, and joy. And that is going to do it for this week. And we have finished up another chapter of the book. Technically, because of the weird structure of this book, this finishes the section that is post-scarcity anarchism, but there's still another third of the book-ish left. I don't know if I will literally do all of it, but I will be continuing because the next section is called Listen Marxist, and I have a strong suspicion that the next section will maybe at least attempt, to address some lingering skepticism I have about about anarchism as being a central tenet of how to view a way forward in society. I said before with the conquest of bread that the principle of being critical of the inherent structures of power, even in leftist circles, even in a socialist communist structure of society, that that problem does exist, but that even after finishing the conquest of bread, I was skeptical of the notion that the solution is simply to have no power structure whatsoever, or that that was a realistic aim. And while so far post-scarcity anarchism has made its case for how people could theoretically live in more disparate societies, and how technology has advanced in ways where, in one sense, it is centralizing people more, and is trying to coerce people further into falling into the capitalist ideal of people being concentrated in cities, being living increasingly factory-esque lives, well, at the same time, we have technological advances that could absolutely allow small groups of people to live quite remotely and not sacrifice too much in terms of their lifestyle if they were given the opportunity to do as much. But I remain somewhat skeptical of anarchism as being a primary driver of ideology. Because in one sense, it feels like an excessive push to fully dismantle any notion of hierarchy. And this book gives two examples where it says this worked well, one of which is an ancient Greek slaveholding society, one of which was revolutionary Paris. In both cases, this structure of assemblies fell apart, which does not inherently mean there is no value in these things, obviously but also feels like you don't have a strong example of how this does in fact work, and have not even given a theoretical reason for why it would still be fine. 
the argument being made is more that it could work and that it would be good if it worked. This is what I mean with perhaps listen Marxist is about to tell me why I should have more faith in it or be less skeptical or at least be more critical of assumptions of how communist society could be structured. But thus far, the book has not really undone any of my reservations and skepticism that still linger from reading The Conquest of Bread. The slightly more modern take in things has been interesting because The Conquest of Bread, it's in the title. It was concerned with food and the material needs of people to live. I was not fixated wholly on subsistence as being the only driver of need, but this book exists in a world where it is quite accurately saying there wouldn't even be a ton of toil because technology has advanced to the point that we could simply have enough for people, even without using the centralizing efficiencies of society. So I am curious how the rest of this book will go, and again, like when I was starting this book, I might be wrong about what Listen Marxist is about to tell me, and it might be a lot more adjacent and still dodging the actual questions I have about anarchism and the practical application of it. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can go to soundimage.org to find that and lots of other music there. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. You can also go to patreon.com slash abnormalmapping to support the network there and get more bonus shows that are all very good and I recommend them. That is all for this week. Thank you for listening and keep reading. <laughs>